Inside 65, the Reserve Bank of Australia's podcast where we bring you insights into monetary policy, the financial system, our economy and the impact of the world at large. From our head office at 65 Martin Place in Sydney, we'll pull together interviews, conversations, explainers and speeches given around Australia by our leaders to tell you a little bit more about who we are and what we do. If you're interested in learning more about the bank, check out our website rba.gov.au where you can subscribe to other content, find more information or contact us directly. I'm Iris, a senior economist here at the Reserve Bank. Marion Kohler, the head of economic analysis, recently gave a speech in Perth to the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, otherwise known as CEDA, about the why, how and what of forecasting. Marion talks about how forecasting is a key decision-making tool for central banks. But forecasting is far from simple. There are a range of challenges, uncertainties and risks that need to be taken into account. Marion also provides an overview of the most recent forecasts for growth, unemployment and inflation. So stay tuned to listen to Marion's speech. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, coming today. My colleague Lucy Ellis has been unable to come for personal reasons and she asked me to step in today Uh, and I just have to say I'm delighted to do so. It's great to be with you in Perth after such a long time when we couldn't be together. As you would know, the Reserve Bank Board met yesterday here at the Western Australian um, office of of the bank. The Governor discussed the monetary policy decision last night so I'm not going to repeat that discussion today. Instead, I'm going to talk about the forecast that we presented to the board yesterday, which informed their decision. The details of those forecasts will be published on Friday in the Statement of Monetary Policy. Today, I'm going to preview some of the highlights of those forecasts and provide some context to them. Before I get to those details, I'd like to talk about why and how central banks forecast. I will also make some observations about some principles we need to observe when we forecast. So why do central banks forecast? Forecasts are a key tool for central bank decision making. It takes time for monetary policy to affect economic activity and inflation. These so-called long and variable lags of monetary policy mean that central banks need to have a view on how the economy will be tracking in future. Financial factors, including the exchange rate, asset prices, and borrowing behavior, respond soonest to change in policy interest rates. Next comes real activity, followed by the labor market, and finally, inflation. It takes a while for these effects to flow right through the economy. Economic models give us some guide on how long we might expect these lags to be. Here is one of our models. Uh, It's called Martin. Um, I don't actually remember anymore what the abbreviation stands for. Uh, But it is a a full system economic model. In this model, A higher cash rate, which you can see in the first panel, starts flowing through to GDP relatively quickly. But as you can see in the second panel, um, 
The peak effect is only around one and a half years later. The lower level of economic activity translates into an increase in the unemployment rate, with a peak effect at around two years after the policy rate change. And that's the third panel you can see here. Inflation is the last to move, with a peak effect at a little over two years. The timing and magnitude of the effects varies between models and over time, and the estimates are typically imprecise. But the results from Martin are very broadly consistent with other models that we also look at. In line with these lags, our forecasts typically cover the coming two and a half years, just to go beyond that two years and a bit. In recent years, things have turned out very differently from our earlier forecasts. With that in mind, it's important to be clear about what our forecasts are and what they are not. They are not pure predictions of the future. Rather, they are an indicative tool for decision-making. If the projected path for inflation and other variables is not consistent with the bank's inflation target, that points to a need for a different path for the cash rate. And with a different path for policy, the outcomes will obviously differ from earlier forecasts. But neither is this a simple formula whereby policy can be mechanically set so that the forecast for inflation is always exactly at the target. For a start, we also have a mandate for full employment. And there can be a trade-off between the two in the short term. There are also a range of uncertainties around the forecasts that we need to bear in mind. These risks aren't always evenly balanced, although it can be difficult to assess, except with hindsight. Shocks happen, and, <clears throat> and economic structures evolve. That means there is inherent uncertainty about where you are now and how much you need to change policy to get to your desired result. These considerations speak to the need for both policymakers and the public to see the forecasts as more than just a set of numerical predictions for specific outcomes such as inflation or unemployment. Surrounding these point forecasts are a range of judgments and risk assessments. These can be set out qualitatively as a discussion of risks and uncertainties, and we do that in each issue of the statement. Or they can be expressed quantitatively as bands around the central forecast. These bands capture the range of past deviations of outcomes from our forecasts, coming from all sources of variation and uncertainties. I'll show those graphs a little later. We also can and do show particular scenarios. Either way, these are just as much part of the forecasts as that numerical central forecast. They help articulate our thinking about how we would interpret signs that things are turning out differently from the central scenario. For example, in the February statement, the one just passed, we explored how outright declines in goods prices would affect our outlook for inflation. Another reason why we shouldn't think of our central scenario as a true prediction let alone a promise, is that it is predicated on paths for the cash rate 
and the exchange rate that are based on market expectations rather than the board's prediction. I'll talk about these assumptions a bit more in a moment. But the main point to take away is that even if those assumptions don't accord with your own view, a central scenario built on some plausible path of future path is still a useful tool for decision making. So to summarize, central banks forecast because monetary policy acts with a lag, but forecasts are not predictions. So how do we forecast? Prediction, the fu predicting the future is hard, and it is even harder if you don't know entirely where you are starting from. That is, when we make forecasts, we do not have comprehensive data on economic activity in the period just past. There is necessarily a lag between when something happens and when that something is compiled into an economic statistic and published. For example, our current forecasts here in early May are based on official data on unemployment and inflation for March. But we don't know yet about April, and we don't know what economic growth in the March quarter was until early next month. There are several ways to address these data gaps and get a better sense of what state current economic conditions are in now when you commence forecasting. This activity is sometimes known as nowcasting. One approach is to combine different partial data, which includes data from the ABS and from private providers, administrative and survey data, and the extensive range of information we collect via our liaison. All of this can be used to estimate the current and most recent periods for broader measures of economic outcomes. At the Reserve Bank, our liaison program is an important input into our nowcasting. Speaking to businesses as well as community services and other organizations across the country gives us a life if partial read on current conditions. Another benefit of these conversations is that we gain insight into the why, the things that are driving people's decisions, what they are concerned about and how they might react if things change. This gives us an insight into the near future as well as the current period. Once we get much beyond the current period, things get a bit more complex. There are no real-time indicators for periods that haven't happened. Some leading indicators help predict outcomes several quarters in advance. But for the most part, we must rely on economic relationships and our understanding of the data to construct a forecast. For these relationships, you need a model. Ideally, you have multiple models. All models involve simplifications, and different simplifying assumptions can yield different results. It's therefore prudent to cross-check against multiple models to ensure your forecast is as robust as possible. Where feasible, that's been our approach at the Reserve Bank. For example, our main inflation forecast system takes the average of four different types of models. We also can cross-check against whole economy models. Models don't always serve you well, though, when forecasting. Judgment is also necessary. Sometimes that is because something unprecedented has happened, like the COVID-19 pandemic. Models are estimated on past data, so they can't handle something that never happened in data we have to hand. Other times, one of the simplifying assumptions in your model, like the importance of supply shocks, lead the model astray. 
A clear example of this is for inflation. Most inflation models best capture demand-driven inflation. Historically, these drivers have been the most important for explaining the persistent component of inflation. During most of the inflation targeting era, supply shocks have tended to be benign or favorable to managing inflation. But we know supply-side disruptions have added a lot to inflation over the past couple of years. We can get an indication of the contribution from supply disruptions when we look at a model. Here, we look at the gap between actual outcomes for, this is core inflation, mean inflation, and what a model tuned to demand factors would tell us. In this exercise, we take the outcomes for the unemployment rate, inflation expectations, and import, import prices as given. And you can see here, even if we had known these outcomes in advance, these kinds of models significantly under-predicted recent inflation. So the model is what the blue bars are. That's the demand-driven model. It's just one of many. You can do the exercise with different ones. But you can see the differences to the red. That's the, supp the supply shocks implied in, in the outcomes. This type of analysis helps us understand the past. And it also helps us inform the judgment needed to account for these less common events in our forecasts. And you can see here that graph has a forecast period attached. And when we kind of pull that exercise forward, that's uh, the decomposition we get into demand and supply on, on what our current forecast would tell us. So it helps us inform the judgment needed to account for these less common events in our forecasts. There's also an, this is also an example of why having a narrative around the forecast is so important. We also need to make some technical assumptions when we have a model. Within any set of forecasts, there's always some factors that must be taken as given. Either they can't be modeled easily, or there's little benefit in doing so. One example is the global outlook. Australia is a relatively small economy, so nothing we do here with monetary policy affects the rest of the world in any material sense. So we take the global growth outlook as given when we put our forecasts together. In addition, for most countries, we do not prepare our own forecasts. Instead, we largely rely on the consensus panel of forecasts. The exception to that is China, where we have developed our own analytical capability including in our team working on the ground in Beijing. The most consequential assumptions we need to make are for the path for the cash rate and the exchange rate. These need to be considered together. There's a large and long-standing literature showing that the best forecast you can make for the exchange rate is whatever level it is today. So that's what we do. Um, having made this assumption for the exchange rate, we can then come to the cash rate assumption. We want to have a coherent set of forecasts that are consistent with each other. So we need to use the future path of interest rates that market participants have in mind when they're trading in financial markets and so also determining the exchange rate. That points us in the direction of using the path implied by OIS, overnight index swap rates. Market pricing can though sometimes become volatile. So, as a practical matter, since um, February last year, that forecast round, we've taken the average of the OS rates and the cash rate forecasts of market economists. There are other approaches we could take. 
such as assuming a path implied by an economic model or the board's own expectations. Some central banks do it that way. But doing so can be interpreted as a commitment or a promise that is not robust to changing circumstances. It's important for you to do continuous improvement when you're forecasting. Learning from the past is important for ensuring we de deliver the best forecasts we can make. Each year, a review of the accuracy of our economic forecasts is presented to the board. We assess what we have learned about the economy and about our own forecasting approach. We are also constantly looking for other ways to improve how we forecast. This includes tapping into new sources of information and data and also looking at new models and techniques. So I walked you through the kind of three ingredients, nowcasts, models, and assumptions, and at the end, learnings, continuous improvement of your forecasting. So let's turn to our forecasts. The first step of the forecasting process is an exercise in answering the question, are things turning out as you expected? Given the large and rapid increase in the cash rate over the past year, a large part of the answer turns on whether the economy is responding as expected to that shift in policy. And in the main, to date it has. There have been some changes in the economy over the pandemic that are influencing the transmission of policy. For the most part, though, the usual relationships are holding. One way we see monetary policy flow through to the economy is via the interest rate mortgage holders pay on their debts and the interest payment savers receive on their deposits. Together, these are known as the cash flow channel. This is where most of the public attention focuses at the moment. That is completely understandable. The effects are intuitive, they're quick, they're highly visible, and they're unevenly distributed. Indeed, some mortgage holders are experiencing a painful squeeze on their financing at the moment. The board and the bank are very mindful of these distributional consequences of policy. My colleague Chris Kent recently gave a speech on two consequences of the pandemic that might mean this channel might be taking a little longer than usual. During the pandemic, more mortgages than usual were taken out at fixed rates and households accumulated large savings buffers. Broadly speaking though, the slowdown in consumption that we are seeing so far is in line with historical relationships. Another way to frame this is that the increase in interest rates seen over the past year, together with the declines in housing prices and real incomes, largely explains the difference between current outcomes for household consumption and also the current forecasts and the forecasts we made a year ago. Another way tighter monetary policy has affected the economy is through lower asset prices and most notably housing prices. We have seen an 8% declining housing prices since April last year. There's a wide range of estimates of what you would expect given developments in the economy since then, including the increase in the cash rate over this period. But this is in that wide, wide range. Lower housing prices have a flow-on effect to dwelling investment. This is a small component of GDP, but it is one of the most sensitive to interest rates and the business cycle more generally. 
One way you can see this is via the close relationship between building approvals, that's the purple line, and the mortgage rate, that's the green line. And you can see that close relationship through history. You can also see that this time round, the timing is a little different. Approvals were unusually high in the period before rates increased, partly because HomeBuilder brought forward some activity. Combined with delays in the construction industry due to capacity constraints, this has resulted in a large pipeline of activity that is still to be completed. So the effect on actual dwelling investment from those interest rate increases could therefore take a bit longer this time to flow through. Taken over a longer period though, we expect it to play out similarly to past tightening cycles. The exchange rate, another channel of transmission, is also about where we would expect it to be based on interest rates, both in Australia and overseas, and other key determinants such as the terms of trade. On a trade-weighted basis, the Australian dollar is around its level in early 22, when many central banks began raising their policy rates. If we had an increased interest rates, the exchange rate would likely be lower, adding to inflation pressures in the domestic economy. I'll now turn to the themes coming through in the current forecasts. So let's have a look at the GDP forecasts first. Growth in the Australian economy, in Australian economic activity has slowed at the end of last year. This is because of both. The monetary policy tightening I just discussed, but also because the initial bounce back from pandemic-related restrictions had mostly run its course. We're expecting growth to remain subdued through this year as higher interest rates, the higher cost of living and earlier declines in household wealth continue to weigh on consumer spending. Those forces weighing on consumption are competing with some supportive forces coming from the tight labour market which results in strong growth in labour incomes and the savings accumulated during the pandemic. How these opposing forces play out in overall growth in consumption is one of the main uncertainties surrounding the forecasts. And I just want to point out, I pointed out earlier the error bands on forecasts, which are the blue lines. That is historical error bands, and it hasn't often included a period like we have now, but that's the kind of normal variation we have always gotten. So you can kind of just get a sense of where the outcomes uh, and what range they might be. From 24, we're forecasting growth to remain below trend, but pick up a little, and you can see that at the end of that graph. As the effect of the earlier monetary policy tightening wanes, inflation moderates, and household wealth recovers. Let's turn to the labour market. In line with the usual lags, the recent softness in economic activity is expected to take some time to flow through to the labour market and inflation. The labour market is still very tight. The unemployment rate is around multi-decade lows and it is expected to remain below pre-pandemic levels over the next couple of years. Underemployment is also low relative to historical experience. That said, 
the balance between labour demand and supply has started to improve recently. As the economy slows, the unemployment rate is expected to increase gradually over the next couple of years. That brings us to the outlook for inflation. Consumer price inflation in Australia eased in the March quarter. We're expecting it to decline further over this year. As I mentioned earlier, two competing forces are driving the inflation outlook. The ongoing tightness in the labour market and the high level of demand for services lead us to expect domestic inflationary pressures to continue. On the other hand, goods price inflation should ease as the resolution of supply chain issues flows through to the prices paid by consumers in Australia. We can have some confidence that goods price inflation will moderate this year. It is already doing so in our peer economies, including in categories such as audiovisual equipment. These goods were the quintessential example of the effects of the pandemic on patterns of demand and on supply chains. For example, demand increased sharply for flat screen TVs, and wholesale panel prices more than doubled. But the increase was quickly unwound as supply chains and demand normalised. The decline in wholesale panel prices has flowed through to retail prices of TVs and other audio and visual equipment in other advanced economies, as you can see on this graph. But prices of these types of goods are yet to decline in Australia. So I want to move now to what's changed since three or six months ago. When putting together the forecast, it is often good to step back and think about the key things we've learned over the past three to six months. I've already touched on one of these, the increased confidence we have in the turnaround on goods inflation. One of the biggest changes in view has come from population growth, which has been stronger than was expected six months ago. This largely reflects faster than expected return of international students and working holidaymakers following the reopening of the international border. But also low levels of departures are adding to this. This has affected the economy in several ways. Firstly, the higher population growth increases demand for housing. Initially, we expect this adjustment to come through higher rents and higher average household size as growth in the population is faster than the dwelling stock. But in the longer run, there's also a boost to dwelling investment. In terms of the effect on the labour market, higher population growth by itself is expected to increase employment growth. Overall, the outlook for key labour market ratios such as the unemployment rate and participation rate, are little changed by faster population growth. There might be differences across different regions and industries, though. The recent migration has been concentrated in students and other temporary residents, such as working holidaymakers. The increase in demand for housing will therefore be concentrated in the largest cities. Similarly, the expansion in labour supply will be most evident in hospitality and other sectors that employ a higher shares of temporary residents than average. A second change in view comes from some policy changes affecting future energy costs. 
Following the very large increase in wholesale electricity costs last year, a large increase in electricity bills for households is due in the September quarter of this year. Regulators have announced draft determination increases to the default office for electricity prices in the eastern states in the 23-24 financial year of 20 to 30 percent. And market offers are assumed to increase by a similar amount. This is still a significant increase, but it is smaller than what we expected six months ago. Government policies announced since then have moderated the expected increase in energy costs somewhat. We reflected that in our February forecasts, as well as in the new ones to be published on Friday. These changes highlight a key point about some of the assumptions that need to be made when forecasting. Forecasts can only be reasonably based on the fiscal and other government policies that are already known at the time. Until those policies have been announced, and in some cases legislated, you cannot know whether and how they will affect the outlook. A third thing that has changed is that the established housing market has been a bit more resilient than might have been expected. After falling for most of last year, national housing prices have started to stabilise in recent months. That is a little earlier than most observers expected. Our assessment is that this probably reflects low supply and stronger fundamentals, such as population growth and higher rents, along with changes to the interest rate outlook. Lower housing prices generally dampen consumption, and the effects of the earlier decline in prices is still working its way through. <clears throat> but with housing prices seemingly stabilising a bit sooner, and at a higher level than most observers would have expected, the total effect of lower housing prices on consumption will be a bit smaller. And I want to conclude now. Um, forecasting is a valuable tool for central bankers, but we will never be able to tell the future perfectly. There will always be new things to learn and ways we can improve as well. We can improve as well. With that in mind, the bank will be carefully considering the recommendations made by the RBA review as they relate to our forecasting. And as for our forecasts, in the past few months, things have been turning out broadly as expected on the macro front. But the faster recovery in the population could turn out to have unanticipated or more pervasive effects. We will also be carefully monitoring how the competing forces affecting both consumer spending and the labour market are playing out, and how the easing and cost pressures coming from global supply chains translates into domestic prices. Thank you for your time. Marian's speech provided insights into the why, how and what of forecasting here at the bank. We hope you enjoyed the speech and thank you for listening. 